On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group begins to discuss Pink Floyd's The Wall. Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Ken Gregory, Paul Zotter, and Tom Corcoran as we begin to talk about Pink Floyd's The Wall. I almost feel pressure to do this episode, you know? It's pressure. almost a little frightening. Yeah. It's this is one of those episodes where, you know, three hours from now, there I'm gonna get a message from Joe <laughs> that says, I don't know if we did th- that justice. <laughs> well, you know what Well the good news we can just do it again next week because we're gonna be talking about it next week too. <laughs> you know, and, and and the thing that gets me and maybe it's good that I've been a little overwhelmed today and haven't had the time to prepare as I would have liked because the amount of lore that is involved in this is spectacular. And now don't change anything, Tom, but now I can't help but look at you and all I see is judge butt face. And (laughs) (laughs) no, no, you're good. You're good. You're good. So for those of you listening at home, Oh yeah, Tom. Tom, being um, you know technologically savvy as he is, has uh, with animals started putting up an album cover backgrounds, and so the the part of the wall, um, presumably gatefold, that he has now is is the part right over his shoulder is is um, worm in all of his buttness. So that's staring right at me as I'm there talking you go. to you. <laughs> if you fit, if you fit to the screen. It will, it will, it will crop him out, and you'll just see Tom and the wall. FYI. Yeah. Okay. So, so anyway, <laughs> there is there is a lot, a lot, lot, lot of lore associated with this album. Lots of stuff going on, as we all sort of know, anyway. Um, and in addition, I'll be curious when we get into the the context, Ken, because. You know, this is the last opportunity we have for Pink Floyd to read a a verse from the revised and updated edition of 1001 oh. Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. And just glancing through the year 1979, it is a wildly different landscape, maybe, than we're used to. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's there's a lot of things sort of moving in the band at this time. There's a lot of things moving in in the in the music industry as a whole and there are a lot of people associated with this record it's recorded at a lot of different places um there's there's just a lot there's so much that goes on and if nothing else and and i'm going to i'm going to personally try to curtail much of my desire to be an asshole to roger waters during these episodes, wow! Because for a couple of different reasons, but it's a shock. Being able to land this project is astounding. And again, once you start looking at the the list of the cast of characters, and to think that they went right from this album, which they you know, not only did they produ- they record and produce under some duress, which we'll get into, um, they did it ahead of schedule to make the, the the Christmas sales season for 1979, and we'll touch on that in a little bit. And then from that, they went right into the production of the live shows, and from the live shows, they went right into the production of the movie. So, and Nick Mason in his book talks about, you know, the wall basically lasted from 1978 to 1983 Mm. um, in all of its various forms. Mm -hmm. And since I brought up the various forms, 
I will share with our listeners some of the ground rules that we have constructed for ourselves here at the Palaver. Mm. In, in keeping with the somewhat arbitrary structure that we have begun, we will, um, and we've already anticipated using at least two episodes, we'll make it two episodes, on the wall. Um, but those two episodes are going to deal with the, the album, The Wall. We have plans, and we don't know if we're going to do it immediately or after the the, uh, the Pink Floyd sequence, but we do have plans to go back and consider live performances of The Wall, not just 1980, but other versions as well, including 1990 and 2010, and then in perhaps a separate episode, maybe even consider the film version. So we will be confining our thoughts and our analysis such as it is for this episode and, and presumably the next episode to the studio album itself. We will be, but I just wanted to give you a little bit of a heads up. There might be a small amount of crossover here because some of my notes, I mean, because we're talking about three entities about the same source, mm-hmm. um, you know, there, there might be a little crossover as, and, as there is in life. So, sure. and, and, but I, I mean, if we try, if we tried to bring in all the various connection points, I think we would be talking. Well, we'd be talking the wall for four weeks. So, sure, yeah, I agree. Which we probably will be <laughs> anyway. Just maybe not all at once, but but you know, to the extent that it's possible. And and you're absolutely right. There are some there are some interesting points where it's going to be difficult. I think to to stay away. But since there is so much to to talk about. Um, Ken, are you prepared to, to give us the progressive rock timeline of 1979 that maybe leads us into Pink Floyd's The Wall? Yes, Joe, nothing less for the Palaver. We're talking uh, the period 77 through 79. Um, the interesting thing about uh, animals is it happened in January 77. So there, there, there was quite a lot of prog still happening in this period, um, we've, we've talked about the uh, world peak of marijuana consumption and, and whatnot. So as I read this list, I suppose you can uh, consider that for what it's worth. February 1977, uh, we've got Utopia, Jethro Tull, Peter Gabriel One, March Emerson, Lake and Palmer, Works Volume One. Uh, we'll give a shout out to Anthony Phillips going solo in this period. Procol Harum, Brand X, Super Tramp, the Alan Parsons Project with iRobot. Very interesting mm-hmm. recording. Sticks, The Grand Illusion. Oh, I love The Grand Illusion. Mm. Yes, go owing for the one. Mm. Caravan, Bill Bruford, Graph Generator, Rush, A Farewell to Kings. Gentle Giant, uh, Kansas, Point of No Return. Genesis. Mm-hmm. Oh, seconds out. It's live. Uh, Queen, News of the World. So 77 is just packed with good stuff. 78, Manfred Ann, Man's Earth Band. Uh, let me see. Zappy. Zappa, Dixie Dregs, Renaissance. Now, I'm stopping at 1978. March uh, for UK, Joe, because I know you have a fondness for Wetton. I do. Yes, can, yes. And Eddie can, Jobson is, is classic. Ken, can I just, I, I mean, I'm just overcome with the idea that that we have it, from July to October, we have you know what i i mean three three anthems of of prog rock that have crossed over into the 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 like things that would have gotten my sisters to buy records come sail away from the grand illusion mm-hmm. dust in the wind mm-hmm. and we will rock you and we are the champions amazing that is amazing sorry go ahead just and you can still respectably throw those on an in a jukebox in a bar. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. and not be called a prog head. Mm. Let me see. Um, 
David Gilmore goes solo in May of 1978 with his self-titled album. Steve Hackett, Please Don't Touch. Anthony Phillips is at it again. Gabriel 2 in June of 78. Big step on Gabriel 2. Absolutely. Uh, let's see. We have Zappa Studio 10. Yes. Tormato. Uh, Jethro Tull bursting out. Let me see some Gentle Giant. Rush Hemispheres. Oh, mm. God. ELP, Mike Oatfield, Queen, all sorts of fantastic people uh, closing out 1978. Did you hit Rick Wright's? Did I hear you say Rick Wright in, uh, in there? <laughs> I said Gilmore Richard, went solo. Yeah, Richard Wright, I think, has one somewhere in there. His, his album is called Wet Dream. Yes, there it is, Wet Dream. Mm-hmm. And somewhere in, in this time frame, and it may be 79, I, th I think it's between Going for the One and Tormato, um, I want to say Rick Wakeman's Criminal Record comes out as well, which is really, mm. really enjoyable. Steve Hackett's Spectral Mornings has a very, mm. very luscious sound. Kansas Monolith. Mm, that's a good one, too. Yellow Discovery. Robert Fripp Exposure. Uh, let me see, Jethro Tull, Stormwatch, uh, Zappa, Joe's Garage, Act One, Tony Banks, A Curious Feeling, 1979, October. Mm. Uh, let me see, November, Zappa did Joe's Garage, Act Two and Three. And then, the 30th of November, 1979, Pink Floyd releases The Wall. That's a lot going on there. I want to say in 1979, according to what I'm looking at, Marillion was formed. Very nice. Nice. There was a birth, a bouncing you can say baby. They are the just in time for the Christmas holidays. I, I imagining uh, like people getting the wall for Christmas. You know? <laughs> can you imagine? As Ken mentioned, then the wall was released on 30 November 1979. Released on the labels Harvest and Columbia, depending on your geographic region. And it was produced by none other than Bob Ezrin, David Gilmore, James Guthrie, and Roger Waters. If we talk about the personnel on the wall, we have the core group of Pink Floyd in Roger Waters, David Gilmore, Nick Mason, and Richard Wright. There is a whole host of additional musicians, including Bruce Johnston, Tony Tennille, which I did not know until literally I just looked down. She is credited with backing vocals on In the Flesh, question mark. The show must go on, In the Flesh, and Waiting for the Worms. Wow. Um, Joe Chimay, John, Joe, yeah, John Joyce, Stan Farber, Jim Haas, Bob Ezrin, James Guthrie, Jeff Picaro, Children of the Islington Green School, Joe Picaro, um, Lee Rittenauer, yeah, Lee. That's, we got to figure that one out. Um, and, and we have a, a connection with, with, with Lee because friend of the Palaver, Ray Parker Jr. and Lee did a lot of work together. And, and Lee is in Who You're Going to Call. Okay. So, nice. um, Very we cool. We actually have a bit of a connection. So Lee, Lee, is, Lee is credited with rhythm guitar on one of my turns and additional acoustic guitar on Comfortably Numb. Joe, parentheses, Ron de Blasi. Um, Fred Mandel. Bobby Hall, Frank Marco, sorry about that, Larry Williams, Trevor Veitch, the New York Orchestra, the New York Opera, Vicki Brown and Claire Torrey, Harry Waters, Chris Fitzmorris, Trudy Young, and Phil Taylor. The production is listed as David Gilmore, Roger Waters, Bob Ezrin, who was credited with production or orchestral arrangement and music on the trial, and Michael Kamen is credited with orchestral arrangement. James Guthrie is the co-producer and the engineer, and then there's a whole host of other engineers and sound equipment folks. So a lot of people worked on this. And then apparently the mastering is, um, oh, I, sh I would be remiss if I didn't mention, um, in terms of credit, Gerald Scarf and Roger Waters are credited with sleeve design, and mm -hmm. Joel Plant or Planty is listed for mastering. The Wall, as we all know, is a double LP or two-disc um, setup. So side one is In the Flesh, question mark, The Thin Ice, Another Brick in the Wall, Part 1, The Happiest Days of Our Lives, Another Brick in the Wall, Part 2, and Mother. Side two is Goodbye Blue Sky, Empty Spaces, 
Young Lust, One of My Turns, Don't Leave Me Now, Another Brick in the Wall, Part 3, and Goodbye, Cruel World. Side 3, Hey You, Is There Anybody Out There, Nobody Home, Vera, Bring the Boys Back Home, Comfortably Numb. And then side 4 is The Show Must Go On, In the Flesh, Run Like Hell, Waiting for the Worms, Stop the Trial, and Outside the Wall. The Wall is the 11th studio album by English rock band Pink Floyd, released 30 November 1979 on Harvest and Columbia Records. It is a rock opera that explores Pink, a jaded rock star, whose eventual self-imposed isolation from society is symbolized by a wall. The album was a commercial success, topping the U.S. charts for 15 weeks and reaching number three in the U.K. It initially received mixed reviews from critics, many of whom found it overblown and pretentious, but later came to be considered one of the greatest albums of all time. Bassist Roger Waters conceived The Wall during Pink Floyd's 1977 In the Flesh tour, modeling the character of Pink after himself and former bandmate Sid Barrett. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so we have successfully invoked Sid Barrett here in The Wall. Our job is done. <laughs> Recording spanned from December 1978 to November 1979. Producer Bob Ezrin helped to refine the concept and bridge tensions during recording as the band were struggling with personal and financial issues at the time. The Wall is the last album to feature Pink Floyd as a quartet. Keyboardist Richard Wright was fired by Waters during production, but stayed on as a salaried musician. Three singles were issued from the album, Another Brick in the Wall Part 2, the band's only U.S. number one single, Run Like Hell, and Comfortably Numb. From 1980 to 1981, Pink Floyd performed the full album on a tour that featured elaborate theatrical effects. And I'm not going to read the last paragraph of the wikis because it goes into the film production, which we will cover later. Now, as mentioned, this is our last opportunity in the Pink Floyd segment to read from the hallowed, revised, and updated edition of 1001 Albums, You Must Hear Before You Die. <laughs> Very excited by that. But I, I mentioned at the top of this, you know, in this particular book, flipping through 1979, because it's all chronological, you see it, it's just different. Very first thing you see is ACDC's Highway to Hell. Um, the B-52s are credited on here. The Police, Regatta de Blanc, Joy Division, <laughs> Unknown Pleasures, um, Marianne Faithful, One Near and Dear to My Heart, The Clash, London Calling, which I think is mm. absolutely brilliant. Neil Young yeah. and Crazy Horse, Rust Never Sleeps, Elvis Costello yes. and the Attractions, um, Cheap Trick, Live at Budokan. Um, you know, so there's, there's all kinds of stuff. Michael Jackson, Off the Wall, came out in 1979. Gary Newman with The Pleasure Principle. I mean, it's just, it's all over the freaking map, right? So if we, I will say, all, every single one of those albums is an album that you should hear before you die. I, and there's I'd a lot more that I didn't read. But. Okay. Okay, so, Pink Floyd. I yeah. thought we could do a whole episode during this period on the death of the keyboard and the death of the piano, perhaps. Just, Maybe, just, yeah. just hearing a lot of that new wave stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, we, we never run out of ideas. We just need to keep track of them. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but the, the virtuoso keyboardist is kind of like no longer there. And, and, and we just want our badass guitars and the keyboardist should sit in the back. From the book, Punk Could Not Kill Pink Floyd. Led Zeppelin, yes, and ELP, ELP days were numbered. Genesis shrank to survive, but the Floyd still did whatever the hell they wanted. Always socially aloof from their contemporaries, except oddly the Who, the Floyd now sought to express their alienation from their audience. The result? A concept album about a disillusioned pop star who wigs out and imagines, imagines himself a fascist leader. So far, so Tommy, so Ziggy. And the central metaphor, Bricks, hardly sets the pulse racing. So the thrill is in the frills, production, elaborate even by the Floyd's grandiose standards, Beach Boys sound alike singing about worms and unusually concise songs, notably the disco protest, Another Brick in the Wall Part 2, and fan favorite Comfortably Numb. 
A mega-selling sensation to rival Dark Side of the Moon, it spent six months in Billboard's top five, topping the chart for 15 weeks. Two decades on, according to chief writer Roger Waters, it still, quote, does anything up to four million each year, end quote. Beloved of Brits such as Noel Gallagher of Oasis and Robbie Williams, The Wall also has legions of stateside disciples. Double albums by the Smashing Pumpkins and Nine Inch Nails would not exist without it. Marilyn Manson's Antichrist superstar is its, quote, or I'm sorry, parentheses, conceptual evil twin. So entrenched is the album, it can even withstand a disco makeover of Comfortably Numb by the Scissor Sisters and threats of a Broadway adaptation. Hear it now before it is tarnished forever. So ends the reading. Wow. Even by the blowhard hyperbolic standards of that book, that's quite a little paragraph or section I just <laughs> read there. Um, <laughs> you know. So, a lot going on. Maybe I can give some of the, you know, the, the condensed version of some of the lore. I find it fascinating. In the previous episodes on, on animals, I was fixated on the, the purchase and the use of, of Britannia Row Studios. Mm. And they started work on the wall in Britannia Row before they had some new accountant in their employ discover the fact that the people that they had hired to invest all of their money were in fact siphoning all of their money off. And apparently they were, they were investing this money pre-tax, and so it, it opened them up to huge amounts of tax liability. According to Nick's book, anywhere from 5 to 12 million pounds between the four of them. And so the, the answer was for them to become tax exiles. They had to leave the UK by the 6th of April and not return for a year. And so they, they packed up their shop and they went to um, France and they, were, they continued to record the wall there and finished it out. Now, I made mention at the start of, of this segment that they finished this early. Um, in 1979, because uh, apparently the, the label came to them and, and really, really wanted this out for Christmas. And so apparently they, they ended up offering them um, a, a slightly larger cut of the proceeds if they would be able to deliver early. And so they went to great extents to, to do that. Now, you know, this was going on, at, and, and this is where it becomes amazing, because as Nick describes it, they the, the band is in one studio, which I believe was called Super Bear Studio, somewhere in France. Um, there was actually another studio that was being utilized for some other parts, and while all this is going on, they're calling back to the UK and the guys at Britannia Row for some of the sound effecty things that they needed and wanted, including the school choir bit, which raised uh, some sort of a, a fuss. Hmm. So they're bringing all this together. And the fact that the wall, you know, like I said, the fact they landed this project is amazing, absolutely stunning. And to do it with this whole sprawling thing going on, um, you know, it, it just, it boggles my mind. And oh, by the way, in the middle of it all, we're going to fire our keyboardist. And he's mm. going to agree to stay on as a paid musician because he's still sharing in this tax debt. So he needs the money. And <laughs> I mean, just... <laughs> Think about all of that going on at once and this coming out. It, to me, it's stunning. Absolutely stunning. And maybe what's even more stunning is in the fact that when all of this started in 1978, apparently there was a period where Roger went absolutely batshit crazy in his home studio and recorded more or less complete demos for both The Wall and the pros and cons of Hitchhiking brought them to the band and said, I've got two ideas. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do one of them. Which one do you guys want to do? And by all accounts, the, the band unanimously picked 
the wall, even though, as Nick said, it, at that point, it didn't have um, David's contributions, namely Run Like Hell and Comfortably Numb. And apparently Roger did a lot of rewriting when they relocated to France. Um, but, you know, you know, ultimately that's the way this whole thing came about. And there was well, enough there for them to say, that's the one we want to do. Listen, you know, based on the way that the pros and cons ended and and came to be, I can't imagine that you know, even the worst possible demo of the wall, they had to have been like, no, no question. We'll take, <laughs> we'll take the bricks on the wall. Thank you very much. That's a lot of the lore convent condensed into a very little, little bit. Um, yeah. There, like I said, there, there's just, there's so much that, that stands behind this. And it's amazing that when you have an album that is, dare I say, so iconic that there's such a story behind it. I mean, this, you know, we 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 spent a lot of time talking about the documentary on on Dark Side of the Moon. That story is very captivating, but it's it's almost like a very positive, uplifting, collaborative story. Whereas this is, it just seems to be, you know, all over the the place, and, and yeah. that's what makes it, um, you know, amazing to me. I, I I guess I'll take this moment to say that in my over the last couple, probably just the last few weeks of, you know, watching YouTube videos and interviews and and whatnot, I got to tell you, I'm I'm starting I'm starting to not starting. I have very much softened my stance uh, about Roger Waters, um, and and so much so that when I was QCing the uh, the episode on metal, and I and I. Uh, I said something to the effect of, you know, this is the opening statement in my case against uh, Roger Waters as a total dish douchebag. I was like, I was stunned. I was like, oh my god, I can't believe I said that. Um, because uh, I just think there's a lot, like you said, Joe. There's so much, and the more I listen to him talk, and the more interviews that I've watched, and I've even I've e even seen him do interviews like recently, like as as recent as like. A, 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 within the month you know I, I think part of the problem that i have now with him is that he's just uh, he's just like a caricature and and he's like mo like especially when he starts talking politics he's like most politicians they're they're just like old guys and gals you know like you know like i loved talking to my dad about politics you know when he was still alive but there were times when I was just like that. I can't even take you seriously. You're like 70 years old. I can't even take you seriously what you're saying. Like you're so isolated over here in this in this like retirement community. Um and you know, and that's kind of what Roger Waters reminds me of as he as he, you know, rambles on about, you know, prisoners of consciousness and and Venezuela. And hey, I'm not saying he's right or wrong. I just say when I listen to him, I feel like, oh my gosh, dude. He just seems very out of touch, but but I'm softening on all of this because I I was so ready to vilify him through this, but the more I I read everything and, and listened to things, the more I was like, you know, he's pretty much just a pompous, arrogant rock star, not really that different from like Stephen Wilson. I, I was I was going to say as you were giving this preamble, <laughs> I, it was going to land at Stephen Wilson because we all except the fact that Stephen Wilson is a pompous ass. And I, I believe I said in the special concert series episode on him, you know, I, I love watching and hearing Stephen play. I do not need Stephen Wilson to ever talk to me. I don't. <laughs> Even that one episode that or that one interview that we found not too long ago. And like I said, I agree with virtually everything he said, but the way he says it makes me want to punch myself. Yes. Yes. I, I feel the same way about Bill Bruford, but yeah. I <laughs> yes, <know>. yes, okay. <laughs> okay, so now we know. We should get them all to dinner. We yeah, should now, get them now, all to dinner. Now, now we <laughs> Maybe we can Roger have a Waters, Zoom dinner Bill with them Bruford all. Bill Bruford and Stephen Wilson dinner. It's been a while since we've owed someone dinner, so that's that's good. I'm glad. Maybe uh, we could dial in Tony Banks at the same time, all, all of them oh, together. Oh, but we love Tony. We love I love Tony. Tony Banks, too. I just think it would be fun to have all of those characters together talking. I would say they're all rather academic or at least very conversational and on a high level. There's something 
I would enjoy the hell out of that. So. Right? Yeah. And, and yeah. I, I have I, said I, on the Palaver, for some, I want to hang out with Roger Waters. I do. I don't know why, but I, I do. Well, Paul, during your diatribe, I... Uh, <laughs> I saw this vision of Roger Waters morphing into a Richard Scarf character. I guess I guess he he finally became what it was that he helped to uh, create. <sighs> but uh, no, I, I I do like the man. I I think what's interesting about some of the lore that you mentioned, Joe, is that like there's all there's other stuff going on, right? Like shit, yeah, all the taxes and stuff like that, like. How many fucking people are going to screw over rock musicians, you know? Like, we're accountants, like, getting together on vacation in the south of France, <laughs> bullshitting about, oh, we fucked over that guy. Oh, yeah? I think I'm going to do the same thing to fucking Billy Joel. That's awesome. You know, like, I mean, what is they're in, the they're deal They're in with some that? hotel and some guy's giving a seminar. How to fuck over rock stars uh, exactly. if you're an accountant. <laughs> they're on tour. They're too busy being creative. They don't know what the fuck's going on with their money. Um, it's just very disappointing, but like the, even the whole Richard Wright thing, like, you know, he was having family troubles. He was away from his family. He was missing his kids. Uh, you know, it, it's a shame that all of that kind of, but you know, everybody was kind of dealing with their own sort of, of, uh, of stuff. And like, it just, you're right. It's amazing that this creative, uh, piece was pulled through, but goodness gracious, like. It, we all know that it's Roger Waters driving the story, but God, when I listen to this album, like all I fucking hear is David Gilmour. It's fantastic. Which is it's kind funny of how there's similarities. Well, it's funny how there's similarities um, with their personal lives between this and and Lamb. Um, the Wall certainly came out better than than Lamb, but with with. <laughs> With with Lamb, there was also a lot of things going on personally that that led to an interesting story. But a couple of things. So you guys both, uh, Paul and Joe, brought up uh, Richard Wright and his um, being fired uh, during this period. And you also brought up Billy Joel, which leads me to, to hired gun. I think it's ironic that Richard Wright. And this is technically more for the, the live section of what we're doing. But he was the only one who actually made money right? on the tour because he was actually a hired gun. Yeah. And the tour, as we know, was really expensive and no one made money on the tour because of just the 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 grand thing that they were they were doing. But um, uh, Richard Wright ended up making um, doing a little bit better for himself. When it, when it got to that point, so I don't know in the yeah. grand scheme of things if he ended up, you know, how much he ended up losing. But um, that was as, as a hired gun during the Wall tour. He actually did. He actually did much better than the rest of the guys in the band. And, and wasn't that the same story that Rick Wakeman told about the going for the one tour? Hmm, that I don't know, but it sounds was, like it would. I I think so, or maybe he was just only hired for the album, and they brought him. I think they brought him in as a full band member, so they wouldn't have to pay him for the tour, or something like that. There was something. Mm -hmm. If if you guys will allow me, I'd I'd like to read a a short bit here from Nick's book with regards to um, Richard's ultimate uh, demise within the band. Mm -hmm. The situation was made worse by the fact that Rick had wanted to be a producer on the wall, as if we didn't have enough already. And Roger had told him that was okay as long as he made a significant contribution. Alas, Rick's contribution was to turn up and sit in on the sessions without doing anything, just be, just quote, being a producer. This had not gone down well with Bob either, who felt this particular broth already had too many cooks, and Rick had been relieved from production duties. Nonetheless, Bob volunteered to help Rick with the keyboard sections, but for any of the many possible reasons, Roger was never satisfied with Rick's performances. Whatever bond Rick had enjoyed with Roger in the previous 15 or so years was terminally broken, and Rick's downfall was swift. Steve, O'Rourke, the manager, was happily cruising to America on the QE2 when he was called by Roger and told to have Rick out of the band by the time Roger arrived in L.A., where the album was due to be mixed. Rick and Roger, um, Rick said Roger could stay on as a paid player for the Wall shows, but after that he was no longer to be a band member. 
If this was not done, Roger threatened to pull the plug on the whole enterprise. Mm. This sounded like a madman with a gun pointed at his own head. Yes. And that's intense. Right? That's and, really intense. And, and, and what's, what really struck me about that passage and why I wanted to read it is, and I've complained about Nick Mason's book throughout this whole segment because it's never really engaged me. This book is, for the most part, very relaxed and, you know, whatever, in much in the way that maybe you would associate with, with someone of, of Nick's presumed personality. I mean, he just, he doesn't really get in there. And so to read something that stark was really, it was jarring, given mm. the, the rest of the experience I've had with that book. You're like, oh, shit. Mm. Well, it's funny because other stories I find myself siding with Richard Wright, but what you just read, I was siding with with Roger because <laughs> I'm just picturing Richard, you know, sitting in, not participating. But I mean, obviously, there's two sides to a story. I mean, I have no idea what happened. But well, Extreme the, tells us there's three sides that very to every story. Ah, <laughs> ah. yeah. Excellent. I I was uh, I want to say that one of the interviews that I watched, uh, you know. They talked a little bit about that ultimatum that that Roger threw out and said basically, because uh, I think some of that had to do around with you know in that mixing and it was that they had to they had to like postpone holiday because they needed to hit this deadline so they could get an extra percentage of yep of whatever and and um and Rick didn't didn't want he wanted to go home on vacation with his family he didn't want to postpone holiday and um. And you know, I want to. I want to say that maybe even David Gilmore in the interview said it. You know, it seemed like a crazy thing. It seems like a crazy thing now to, to talk about that ultimatum. But that in the in the in the situation, what what else could they do? Right? They were under pressure. They needed the money, and you know, they wanted to make they wanted to make the album. And it was and you know everything that Rick was going through. It it, it seemed like the the best the best thing to do. It's crazy. One of my common notes throughout this whole thing is um sometimes i don't know which is richard wright playing and which is bob ezrin because i know he plays a lot of the keyboards as well and so without knowing it's it's been without having a paper in front of me being okay well this part yeah. was done by so-and-so uh, i found it interesting to sort of guess um who it was because it's a little harder on the wall because there aren't your typical Richard Wright sounds that we've sort of been used to hearing and they're definitely more subtle than they have been. Um, so it's, it's interesting to know. I'd, I'd be interested to know, you know, how much Richard was on the album and how much Bob, Bob was. Well, what's really uh, in the, in the re-release of the vinyl that I have, neither Richard Wright or Nick Mason, their are names appear even on the credits. It's, quite fascinating on the credits yeah on the gatefold neither one of their names really so of course you can't read this because the lighting in here is total garbage but anyway yeah it, it's, it's on the on, on the album there's much less yeah it's it's written by roger waters and it says um but there's there's a section here that says pink floyd and it lists the four of them oh yeah i have to check double check the uh sleeves but on the gatefold it doesn't have band credits it it, it just talks about who produced the record and neither Richard or Nick's name are, are, are on it. Um, fascinating. And, and this, the, the CD version here credits only Ezra and Gilmore and waters as producers. Right. In, in, in alphabetical order. It, it's hey, important that's right. Out. It's even called out alphabetical order because we didn't want anyone to think that Roger was the third person in charge. <laughs> <laughs> Roger. <laughs> <laughs> so there's there's a just a, a shit ton going on here with regards to this but i mean and, and and we need to get into the album itself but this is this is important this this is an important album this was probably i'm going to guess given our ages and the way things came out and the ubiquity of these three singles on rock radio when we were growing up uh, yeah, I mean, I'm going to guess these three 
these three tracks, the three singles from this album, um, and ironically, two of them are on disc or the the second uh, the second LP. But this was this was probably our introduction to Pink Floyd. This is probably the first thing that we had that was in our brain. And, you know, when you hear things on the radio and when you're a little kid hearing things on the radio, you don't put it in a larger context of this is part of a, a double concept album or, or things like that. I mean, I can I can vividly remember in in my own very, very goofy way. And... and Okay, so you hear another Brick in the Wall Part 2. Well, that means there must be a Part 1. I want to hear that. That's probably pretty cool. Oh, wait, there's a Part 3? I want to hear that, too. That's got to be awesome, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, just stupid things like that that sort of get you thinking about the rest of it. And, you know, and then, you know, and Paul, you made the comment, I think, before we even started the pre-show. You've been listening to this album for how many years? And it just keeps getting better. Right, it does you it know? Does. So there's there's so much to discover here, and, and I made I made the comment there are parts, as with any any concept rock album, there's always going to be some sort of narrative disconnect that are jarring, and I think that's just you know, I think that's part of the territory, um, but even here these these disconnects. I want to complain about them. I want to say, this was, you know, why couldn't they you know, do this? But the whole damn thing is so good, I don't care. I really don't. I just, I happily sing along and jam out and whatever it is, even in the back of my mind going, this song makes absolutely no sense with the rest of the story. <laughs> oh, gosh, I can't wait to talk about some, some of that. I think that's the, I think the thing... You're right, Joe. This is like the this this is the first thing we heard of Pink Floyd. But this is like the first idea of anything being a concept album when I was, you know, at the the, the age or level that I could actually say, okay, I know what a concept album is. Everything was kind of here. And I think one of the wonderful things that the wall does is it uses so much imagery and metaphors and and just sort of ambiguity. Ambigu ambig uh, ambiguity. Thank you. Ambiguity. It's only eleven thirty at night. I don't know why I'm having trouble talking. Um, that it, it's sort of to me. It's it. What's it, that's what I want in concept albums. Like I want. I want that in Brave. I want that in Misplaced Childhood. I don't want to know what the fuck is going on. I want to have to dig deep and try to figure it out. And um, and you know, and it also allows for individual you know tangents in the in this story to uh, for individual people to hold on to and understand and make it their own so so it's one of the things i love about the wall is like it's kind of all over the place yeah i mean definitely symbolic storytelling <clears throat> excuse me definitely symbolic storytelling and um stream of conscience uh, it, it really asks you to engage in a way that other that other bands don't and you're you're really able to participate on a on a different level for sure so one of the things that i find interesting about this you know and and again it we we've talked on on this and and gilmore set it up after you achieve everything that you set out to achieve with dark side what do you do and while at some levels i chafe at the narrative that is told in in you know, journalistic history or whatever about, you know, wish you were here and, and animals finding Pink Floyd struggling for whatever it is they're going to be. There, there may be a part of that, but, but you have to admire Roger certainly creating a vision and saying, all right, you know, cause it, this all goes back to the, the, the incident in the Montreal stadium at the end of the, in the flesh tour. Cool. You know, and, and, and I can I can have my own views about that and and you know, juxtapose David and Roger's perspective on touring life and everything else. But the fact of the matter is something happened to Roger that inspired him and gave him a message. And again, say what you want to about the final cut, which is going to come next, 
at this point, Roger has built up that cachet, and he's going to use it. He has determined that he has a platform, and he's going to utilize that platform to talk about the things that he feels need to be talked about. I, I, it's, you can't argue with that. Whether you like it or not is a different thing altogether. But, I mean, even I, who, you know, don't necessarily agree with everything he says, besides the fact that it's just such a beautiful fucking piece of, of music, I can't argue with the fact that he's utilizing what he has in the way that he feels is, is appropriate. I, I got to give him props. Story-wise and creative-wise, yes. Uh, I would say that that moment that you were talking about, Joe, at, in Montreal, when you spit on the kid, was, was definitely one of those. But I would actually take it a little further. I think that something must have happened during the Wish You Were Here recording because everything was fine during Dark Side. And although everyone was happy with Wish You Were Here, when I see, when I watch these interviews of the band, namely Roger, I mean, he nicknamed Wish You Were Here, Wish We Were Here, because he, as a joke, because he just right. didn't think anybody, everyone was participating in the way that he wanted everyone to participate. And the four of them will have something different to say about this, but Roger Waters really was not happy with how that whole recording went down. That's not to say that he was disenchanted or it's not to say that he hated the album per se, but he, he doesn't have a lot of good things to say about how it was recorded. And I think he, he was, must've been so frustrated during that recording and had such a different experience than the other three that he said, listen, if we're going to, if I'm going to get shit done, this is going to be, this is going to be done my way. And then we've already talked about animals and, you know, we have a lot to talk about yeah. with, with the wall. But I, I think, uh, I mean, story wise, yes. Talking about his childhood and there's all that, but I mean, there must've been something in wish you were here that really was the ground zero of how things changed. And, like you had mentioned, I, Joe, I'm sort of, it's sad to see, but it's, I'm all, you know, we should be grateful in a way because, you know, animals in the wall are, are incredible. So yeah, I'm, I'm sort of conflicted as well. I think you had mentioned in the beginning of this that you were conflicted. I'm, I, I've been very conflicted about, you know, the last two albums because I always want I'm always saying to myself, wow, what would it have been like if, you know, uh, different people contributed more to this would it have been better in certain areas but you know we have a great album here and we have you know the best you know arguably one of the best albums on ever made so you know that's good enough for me but there is another side to it it's it's interesting tom that you're talking about this because i've been kind of thinking around roger waters and you know the transition from uh wish you were here to animals and this i may be overplaying this i got what was the guy who the guy's name who sang have a cigar roy baker roy something harper, like that roy roy hyper harper yeah it, you know so i mean think about your think about you're in that boat you're not really happy with you know necessarily how everything's coming along and everyone in the band decides that this other guy in studio b should sing this track instead of you because you're just mm -hmm. not getting it done and like, and like, I, it's amazing to me that after Wish You Were Here, all of a sudden, Roger Waters is like, he's got his vocal shit down and together, and now he's singing like a motherfucker, and he's sort of taken over control. And both Richard Wright and David Gilmour wrote solo albums the year before The Wall. They, what, I mean, what did they really have to bring? And here comes Roger Waters walking in with two fucking demos here you guys pick pick which which album we should work on <laughs> it's like it was like a perfect storm for him to just sort of take over the band and one of the interesting things yeah go ahead ken 
Oh, I brought this up in another episode, but personally, Roger Waters was with Judith Trim, Judy, for years until 1975. Then in 1976, Waters married Lady Caroline Christie. So clearly he, he had more of the, the youthful, joyous love with, with Judy, but more of a, an adult relationship huh. with uh, Lady uh, Caroline Christie. Uh, and also started a family. We, we already talked about his revelation around age 30 of, oh, my God, this isn't rehearsal. This is real life. Right. Yeah. yeah. So this is all within a two or three year period that he goes through these changes. Mm. And so, Tom, I'm really agreeing with you. He did change. Yeah. Right. It's interesting stuff. And what I find, you know, me being me and, and me growing up the way I did and everything else, um, you know, while I was aware of, of these things, I really came on board at a momentary lapse of reason. And for lack of a better phrase, I, I sort of fell in love with David Gilmore and all that he did. And so when you go back and you hear the, the, the tale of, of struggle between David and Roger on a legal basis when, when David and Nick were putting together a momentary lapse of reason, you know, my initial inclination was, you know, Roger's just being an asshole. But when you see how this band progressed and how these main series of albums came about, it's not that, it's, it's a lot easier to see Roger's claim to Pink Floyd, you know, yeah. because he, at, at this point, he is driving all of this. And, you know, whether, whether by, you know, conscious decision or simple inaction, no one else is is resisting him on that. I mean, David Gilmore's got two songs on here, really. Even though, to your point, Paul, he's all that you hear. Mm. You know, and, and so I, I don't know. I just I find that I find that personally fascinating. That I can I can understand why Roger would have said, "You can't have Pink Floyd without me." And quite frankly, given the fact of how much Roger did and is doing here and what David is, is contributing even on his, his solo albums. I mean, there are good, good points on there, but it's not like knock you down, go, Oh my God, this is the greatest thing ever. I mean, and I'm, I made the comment in, in one of our episodes that we QC'd recently, you know, and I, it was probably metal. I think I said, this is not the David Gilmore that he's going to become. He hadn't he hadn't grown up so you know it, it's it's I just find it interesting to put this con this provides so much context for what's going to come later on it's just it's fun for me hmm. but maybe we should actually talk about the album I don't know <laughs> actually real quick before we do okay let's uh, let me just say how ironic it is okay <laughs> guys <laughs> that we are one of the themes of the wall is about um, alienation, and we are all quarantined for the, the COVID-19. Yeah. Uh, this is like the perfect time to talk about this. I'll buy um, that for a dollar. It's about isolation, <laughs> alienation from the world. Okay, building up a wall, and then like all of us are, you know, stuck in our houses. And so this is just like, this is amazing. Also... Um, you know, Ken and I talked a little bit about this, I think, in the Amagama episode, but like on a personal note, on a sentimental note, if you will, I mean, this is like an album that we were like born to talk about because we play these songs like Young Lust, Mother. I mean, this is like the wall was has been with us since we were like we first started to play. And so, you know, as a some other bands, maybe some of us were not quite on board as other ones or were heavy into other things or, or whatnot. But it seems like Pink Floyd and especially The Wall was like, you know, surface tension. For the people listening, surface tension was our uh, band in, 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 in high school. So this is like uh, this is this is like ground zero. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, because we were these are the songs that we played. I mean, when we talk about concept albums. I mean, before there was Brave, there was The Wall. We were, you know, talking about, yeah. Yeah. you know, The Wall. And, of course, 
other concept albums came in and we were goo goo gaga over 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 this stuff but i mean the wall was was really it, it so this is is I it fair to say that it's that way for the general population of our of our of the generations that, that or the generation that we're a part of i mean the wall is kind of like the xerox or the kleenex if you will of concepts records right it's like, i I, w- I would agree i mean some would probably bring in tommy before that but i mean I, I would agree. I mean, the wall is 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 definitely the concept album. I mean, when uh, Operation Mindcrime came out, they didn't <laughs> they didn't put on the sticker "This is the Tommy of heavy metal." They put on "This is heavy metal's version of the wall." Right. <laughs> <laughs> All of this, um, and. Uh, uh, as we adore the wall and as we praise the wall. Is there an avenue for the Palaver to do a salvage.com? On the wall? On the wall? Come on, guys. Would you do it? I I, I wouldn't. I I mean, up until today, up until this week, there's one song that I would happily remove. But I I think I've kind of figured out why that song exists, and I would keep it in now. So I don't think I would take out any of these songs. Okay. Okay. I, I mean, I there are some things that I would happily lop off of here, but they're few and far between. Not enough to make it really worth anything. Throwing it out so. there. Yeah, that's in, it, I, you know it's it. I like the provocative question, Ken. I like it a lot, but I this is this is not a bloated double disc. I think. I I, I think you know, and and again, even the songs that I would cut out. They're either A, really short, or B, I really like them anyway. So, yeah, it's all good. Yeah. And you're right, Tom. It's not four songs aside. It goes six, seven, six, seven. But it feels like, you know, it doesn't feel – it goes right by. I, I can barely make turkey burgers in, before I have to flip the record. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I, is it fair to say – how do you guys want to deal with this? I mean, there's no way – in my mind, that we can cover 13 tracks in a reasonable amount of time. I know when we did The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, we just kind of went through and talked about particular highlights, but I mean, everything's a freaking highlight here. So I, I'm kind of out of, at a loss for how we approach this. This is actually, I, I was going to recommend, I don't know how you guys feel about this. We almost, we really have an episode right now. I, yeah. mean, I mean, we're, we're at like an hour and 20 minutes. I I'm mean, looking if, at my clock. It, I it, mean, we could actually do this as an episode and then do part two and three. We, we could. <laughs> I mean, at, at, and I was going to say, worst case scenario, we take a seven-minute break, allow me to save this file, and then restart. Um, or we just push everything off and start talking music next week. <laughs> Ken, Ken, it's like, yes, please, yes, please, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> Well, then, I think we'll just, you know, call it quits for now, and we will count this one as our preamble episode, and we will convene next week to get into the music itself. So, gentlemen, as always, thank you very much, and look forward to continuing our discussion on The Wall next episode. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you, and we look forward to your thoughts, comments, feedback, and questions. Feel free to reach out to us on your general thoughts on the wall, on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. We are at ProgPala on all of those. Search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, at some point Pandora, or presumably wherever you find your podcast. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening.
I mean, it's only what, like, I don't even know what time it is. My time. I'm going to Cylon time is what it is. <laughs> it's not, it is. It's Cylon time. <laughs> <laughs> the laugh is that much more cynical. <laughs> What time is it? It's Cylon time.